Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Let's Talk About from Style Canada. And let me tell you, we're talking. Let's face it, we talk a lot. We talk about things we love, hot topics, and anything in between. But what about the things we don't talk about? What about the things we want to know, but don't know how to ask? Don't worry, we've got you covered. Let's expand our horizons. Let's talk about it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk About. Today, let's talk about racism with Avery Francis. Avery has spent her career putting in the work to help leaders build inclusive company cultures, from hiring to attracting talent and anything in between. As a Canadian entrepreneur and the founder and CEO of Bloom, Avery advocates for diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Avery also founded Sunday Showers, a business that helps celebrate professional accomplishments by women. And as if she couldn't get more incredible, Avery also founded the Bridge Program, a free code school for women identifying and non-binary people in tech. With all of her achievements and knowledge, Avery has assisted leading organizations in their business. Living her life as a Black woman, she knows firsthand about the intersectionality that exists in the world and what we can do to talk about it and act on it. Avery, thank you for being here today. I'm so excited (laughs) to chat with you. Thank you for that awesome intro. I need you to send me that intro and I'm going to use that moving forward. (laughs) It was great. After I read it, um, I'm like, I want to be this girl's best friend between all your charitable work, um, your advocacy and and your day job too. You, you're definitely the full package. So we really appreciate you being here today for an important conversation. Grateful that you're taking the time. Although you are an influencer in this space, this isn't your day job and we'll get into what your day job is a little later on. Um, but there is a wealth of information that you post on your social channels. There was a quote that uh, you posted recently that that I really kind of hit home for me, and it was a great way to stall your growth is to tell yourself you have no growing to do. Yeah. So I wanted to start there because I really kind of wanted to get an understanding of how did you start in this space and start really becoming an influencer when it comes to racism and and talking about diversity and et cetera. Yeah, I, it's so funny. I think that anyone that does influencing or influences whatever, maybe a group or a community of people, there's like this hesitation, almost resistance to being or identifying as an influencer. I'd like to think of myself as uh, someone that is okay and empowered to share my lived experiences with the world. There's a lot of implications that come along with uh, sharing some of these lived experiences, talking openly and speaking openly about sexism, racism, or all the isms. And as someone that is now self-employed and in, in a comfortable place, I hold a considerable amount of power and privilege. And a part of me um, spending that privilege is speaking openly about uh, experiences that folks similar to me have uh, and sharing that with the world. It's it's tough because I think that for me, uh, after George Floyd's murder, I've been speaking a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion for a long time uh, as someone that has spent a lot of time and now over over a lot of time over 10 years in the HR space. This is so deeply ingrained in the work that I do on a daily basis, but ultimately I was angry. Uh, I was really angry and uh, fed up with the pervasive uh, both conversations and imagery and videos that I was and have been seeing um, against black folks uh, and the the violence and the harmful images that I kept seeing and, and being kind of exposed to just 
there was something about George Floyd's murder that was so intimate and so up close and so personal and so horrific that it just threw me over the edge. And I think that initially I was creating content for a client. And then I actually asked if it was okay that I share that online. And that's when it just kind of, it it poured out of me. After George Floyd's murder, I spent most of my evenings up all night, feeling sick and anxious and wanting to do something. And I have been educating people uh, in the space from a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective and building more inclusive and more diverse environments. And I know that I'm doing my part as it relates to the workplace, but we were having big conversations around things like dismantling systemic oppression. And those are very big, complex problems to solve and what I wanted to do was be a part of some of the smaller things uh, that folks experience that lead to these bigger, broader challenges and issues that specifically Black folks experience. So I shared my own experiences. Um, and that's where I started with talking about, you know, things that you shouldn't say to a Black woman and talking about how white folks can spend their privilege. These are conversations I've been having for years, uh, but I just kind of, you know, shifted them into a different format and a different medium so people could digest them and see them uh, and have them like delivered right to the palm of their hand. (laughs) No, you said it perfectly because I don't think, you know, there it's a thousand cuts, right? And so we hear about these bigger words and these bigger issues, but the way that you've presented them, and and we'll talk a little bit later about, you know, the concept of calling in versus calling out, which, which you practice and I love. I feel like you're someone that you know, a lot of people clearly have gone to. You mentioned, obviously, for you, it kind of kicked off with the murder of George Floyd, but the Black Lives Matter movement actually started with Trevon Martin, right? Eight, eight some odd years ago. So, And obviously, racism has existed much longer than that. But you're right in that, and I say this as a white, a white woman, I think we've kind of, as white people, more woken up to it since last June. And I think along with that, there's that that token support that happens. So I'd love for you to kind of talk a little bit about how we can avoid that in our support. And I think you're a great example of someone that does avoid it. You've been talking to talk for quite, or talking to talk and walking to walk for quite some time now. Yeah. Well, as a black woman, I live these experiences on a daily basis. I've been on the receiving end of racism. Um, I've been on the receiving end of prejudice, of bias, um, whether it be knowingly or unknowingly, that's been a part of my lived experience. And I take that lived experience everywhere I go. Uh, and of course, that awareness with me as well. Uh, and we call this like a trauma response to these types of experiences uh, is hypervigilance. And the hypervigilance that I do is like things like ensuring that I'm always like presentable when I'm in public, constantly smiling, um, you know, carrying myself in a way that's not too threatening and, and, and really being like really kind of like overly friendly, overly bubbly, whether it be in the workplace or even when I'm grocery shopping, I'm overly complimentary and constantly apologizing. Um, and I mean, this is something that a lot of women do in general, uh, women identified people. But for me, uh, as a black woman, I just find that I'm, you know, kind of walking on eggshells at all times. So I'm not perceived in the wrong way. As it relates to performative allyship or performative action, I I think that right now social media is so fantastic with driving these conversations in a meaningful way and involving people in a way that's digestible and safe uh, and in some cases like aesthetically pleasing to to talk about things like racism or, you know, dismantling, um, you know, systemic uh, systemic systems that that oppress and marginalize uh, specifically black people. The challenge that I'm finding is that it's really easy to do this work uh, now. It's really easy to show your support, whether it be through liking something or resharing a post. And some of the challenges I'm coming across is like people are uh, showing their social support, but they're not actually taking action in real life. So I guess my biggest kind of suggestion in this area is if you want to really take sustained action, that means doing the work. So actually learning about it, picking up, there's lots of really fantastic books out there that help people to navigate through this work. There's really fantastic educational programs. There's training that you can do so you can get a better and more deeper and fulsome uh, idea in terms of like what this work looks like in practice, but then also taking sustained action through what you do. So that means, you know, advocacy. That means being and acting as an ally on a daily basis. That means speaking out against um, anti-Black racism and what that looks like. It means uh, doing more than just sharing a post or liking something that's on social media. And I think that also it means allowing people and providing 
offering space for people to learn, not publicly. And I think that right now there's a big emphasis specifically within influencer culture for all the influencers, if they're beauty influencers or fashion influencers to talk about racism. And I don't agree with that. Sometimes those people aren't the best people to speak about it. And if you have folks that are being forced into or pressured to show their, their support virtually, digitally, on social media, what happens when they're not doing the work is it actually is causing more harm than it is good. And and this is what we're seeing a lot of right now is we're having influencers getting called in or called out publicly for not doing enough, not saying enough. But then when they do something, they're saying the wrong thing. So actually guiding people along the wrong path, providing them with feedback or instructions or suggestions or even information that isn't correct. And and that's that's actually contributing to um, the work going in a wrong direction. It's it's not helping the communities that you're looking to support. So I'm a big believer in allowing people to learn in private. Uh, I'm also a big believer in not forcing people to talk about things that they don't really care about. Yeah. So yeah, I think that, (laughs) so that's, I I think that people are using it. They're using this kind of trope around accountability culture as a way to force influencers that really have no business speaking about racism to do so. They can amplify the voices of of educators and uh, DEI strategists and practitioners or activists in this space. That makes a lot of sense. But if they're sharing their thoughts on allyship without actually having done the work quickly, like done the work, taking the time to do the work. And I know that this takes a lot longer than reading a book or listening to a podcast or reading or reading like a carousel on Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. It it takes time to develop that muscle and to to learn in that space. I love that you you said that because I think, and this isn't related to Style Canada, but I think of my charity Mm -hmm. and how we've really spent the past eight months, and I have another call tomorrow, just talking about systemic racism in the healthcare system. So for me, it's like, I know I'm not going to conquer all of racism, but can I learn more about the healthcare system and what programs we can do in that area? So I think that's a great point. It's almost like learning maybe behind closed doors doesn't always have to be in public, but then also deciding what area, you know, maybe does feel most personal to you. Right. And what can you most impact in that way? Totally. And the way that I like to phrase that is think about the inequities that you're looking to solve for and start there because we can't solve them all at once. Right. There are millions of people that are oppressed, disenfranchised, marginalized, and a part of these um, minority groups that are existing in systems that were not built with them in mind. Oftentimes, the systems that we all exist in were built with white cisgendered men in mind, and they were built to serve them, support them, to help them thrive. And I think that there's so many different areas. Like I center a lot of my work around the workplace because I know it's such an important part of our everyday life. We spend most of our time at work. It's integral in terms of how we actually, the type of life that we live uh, from an economic perspective. And that's where I like to center the majority of my work. I don't spend a lot of time in, you know, removing barriers and dismantling systems as as it relates to the healthcare system. But there's a lot of folks out there that are doing that right now. And I think that right now, especially uh, folks that are wanting to do good work in this space, that are wanting to be a part of positive change and dismantling some of these systems are getting overwhelmed with where to start. Uh, and I think that that's the important thing is like really thinking about the, the inequities that you want to solve for, the inequities that you can make an impact on, where you can actually uh, drive change and starting there and then build from there over time. Th- these, these systems are going to take hundreds of years for us to dismantle, to change, to redesign and reimagine. So you're not going to do it all overnight. And also I think that we have to allow people time and space to catch up to the folks that are further along on their learning journey, right? I've been where people are at before. I have said in some cases that not recently, but when I was younger, I, I was, I was a part of a group that thought it was okay and funny to say certain homophobic and transphobic things earlier on in my life when I was in like high school and stuff like that. I can't say that I've never said a transphobic thing. And I can, I acknowledge and understand where people are at the beginning of their learning journey. Cause sometimes you're in such a small bubble that you just simply don't know what you don't know. Uh, and most people that identify specifically for white folks identify as white 
don't have more than one or two black friends, don't have more than one or two South Asian friends. So they don't necessarily know what the challenges that these communities face because they don't know anyone that's a part of those communities. So of course, they don't think that these challenges, these problems, these, these systemic isms impact their community because those folks aren't a part of their community. So right, breaking right. all that down takes a lot of work. And I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but no, you, you actually cut, you're, <laughs> keep going. I wanted to talk about the systemic piece of it. And yeah. you hit the nail on the head. Like I grew up in a predominantly white Catholic, Italian, even small town. And we had, you know, there was two black families mm-hmm. that were in that Granted, from there, I then went on to live in New York City for a decade and then was obviously exposed to many cultures, different people, et cetera. But many people that I grew up with never had that that second piece of things, right? So I think you're, I, anyway, keep going with what you're saying because I think you're hitting the nail on the head is that we don't know what we don't know and we, you know, you're grown up in this environment, but it is your job now to to find more information, right? Yes. And to educate yourself. Totally. And yeah. I think that that's what makes this work so uncomfortable because it is about the systems, but it's also about the individual. It's about you, right? I've been groomed and, um, you know, society has, um, you know, kind of, I I don't know how, like has, 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 I've grown up in a society where some of the things that are definitely not okay now were okay at a certain time. And we thought that they were okay because we weren't listening to the voices, the perspectives, the opinions of folks, a part of those communities. And I think that what makes this work really scary for a lot of people isn't because they don't want to change. It's not because they don't want folks to, you know, be included, to be seen for all of their, you know, the intersections of their unique identity. It's because Facing yourself in the mirror and acknowledging that you've done harm, that you've said things that have hurt people, that you've been a part of the problem, regardless of how you identify, is really hard. And changing that, just like it would be hard for me to change some of my own bad habits, commitments I've made to myself that I haven't kind of, um, that I haven't followed through with, et cetera, et cetera. It's complex. It's about you. And there's so many things that people need to navigate around to build that muscle, to get more comfortable with doing this work. And going back to your initial comment about that quote is around, you know, it's hard to grow when you believe that there's no growing to do a big kind of conversation as a part of this, this this learning and this work is centered around, you know, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's a, that's a pretty big bridge to hop over for folks. I don't want to be uncomfortable personally. (laughs) I don't like the feeling of discomfort. I've had my cozy socks on. Totally. No one likes that idea and no one likes the idea. And that's a, that's a, that feels like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. So for people that are wanting to provoke change that are wanting to do good, uh, that are wanting to um, do this essential work, when you think of it in a way that like, okay, I'm always going to be uncomfortable with this. It's not very inspiring. And I'm not saying this because we need to like hold white folks hands for these conversations. I'm saying it in a way that you will get more comfortable with this. Like, I know that you will, because I've been at that starting point too. Maybe not as it relates to um, my experiences as a black person, but when I've put in the work to learning more about indigenous communities and learning more about, um, the, the trans experience, I'm getting more and more comfortable having those conversations and advocating on behalf of those folks and not necessarily speaking over, but speaking up for them. And for me, what I've learned more than ever is that when you learn a thing and then you're able to point it out and you're able to acknowledge it and identify it and you have a language and words and things to under to, to, to unpack it and to describe it. And when you can name it, it feels so empowering, right? Because you're now aware of something that impacts a group that you don't necessarily identify with. And that is a transformational experience. And that's kind of where I'm at in this journey. And I think that when we talk about growth and the discomfort that comes around along with it, of course, it's, 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 it's a part of the process, but when you get to the point where you build that muscle and you get more comfortable with it, it is so empowering, not only just for you, but for other folks as well. Um, there's so much that we don't know, right. And when you get comfortable with knowing that you don't know all the things, and there's folks that probably can make you more aware of things you're not aware of, then that actually creates a better foundation to do the work. And that's honestly what this whole 
theme of the podcast is mm-hmm. in general, like let's talk about. So I know, you know, we have many conversations that I'm not comfortable with yeah. quite yet, but the whole idea is let's start having the conversations, you know, and, and that's a starting point for me personally, but hopefully also for the, those listening. So talking about, you know, you mentioned earlier, we were talking about that kind of idea of a thousand little things and a thousand cuts and yeah. microaggressions fit right into that. And for me, what I, the main thing that I noticed that I took part in and have fault with is commenting on my black friend's hair and their extensions and yeah. saying how great they looked. I'd love to hear, you know, what what are some other kind of common microaggressions that maybe people don't realize that they're doing? I think you had a whole like segment, I think on global TV about this. That was really interesting. I think it was global TV. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So um, I talked and shared about, I guess this came from my own experience. And one thing I'd like to acknowledge is that sometimes when there's trust between um, two people or with 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 a person and a group of folks, whatever it may be, uh, specifically if those folks don't identify the same as you, like if I have someone that comments on how great my hair is and they're a close friend of mine for, for and have been for years, I don't take offense to that. It's when for me personally, right, this could be, and, and I think that ultimately when I provide people with advice in this area, it's better just to not say the thing just to be safe. Right. Um, but if you have trust, uh, I'm sure that your black friends would love to hear that you love their new hairstyle or that you love their curls or, you know, their hair is looking really healthy. I think that there's different ways to position it and phrase it. So the language is inclusive and not in some way like presents as a microaggression. Right. Um, but for me, there's, uh, it's saying things like, uh, you're so well-spoken, right. Or, uh, you have good hair. Uh, it, it is something that has always really kind of impacted me negatively. It almost implies that I'm lucky to have hair like I do, uh, despite my black heritage. Uh, saying things like, uh, for as a as a black woman, um, when people ask me what my partner does for work, uh, ultimately, like it, there's been a lot of situations, whether it be me, you know, purchasing something for my new home or when I've been renovating my house. Oftentimes, people will direct their conversations to my partner, who has nothing to do with the purchase of my home. Oftentimes, because they assume that he was the one that purchased it, because I mean, black home home ownership isn't as um, as, as specifically black women owning homes isn't as typical, or the assumption is that it's not typical. But black women, fun fact, are the highing uh, highest like kind of rising uh, category of single homeowners, like. In from what I believe the U.S., I don't like love sharing statistics, but I thought that that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that um, is interesting. Some other microaggressions would be like things like, um, oh, well, you know, what's your background or you don't sound black or you're not really black, black as someone that's biracial. That's been something I hear a lot. And it's incredibly frustrating for me because it's just like negating or questioning my my identity and how I identify. So, yeah, those are just kind of off the top of the head, off the top of my head, some microaggressions that I've experienced or heard of in my life that rubbed me the wrong way. I think important to point out what you did that they could also be personal, right? Totally. It it could. uh, Yeah. So it's dependent on the person as well. And you mentioned you're, you're biracial. Mm -hmm. Your mother is white Mm -hmm. and how you growing up felt and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it, from what I've heard of different interviews, like almost like a bit of a, a conflict there, or can you talk a little bit about that experience? Absolutely. I think that for me, um, and I, I don't want to, I don't think that there's, there's sides to this per se, but there's different perspectives and my, I've grown up in a predominantly white environment. The majority of the folks that are in my in-group, as you would refer to, and you know, as it relates to bias and everything, identify as white. Uh, so I have a lot of trust uh, and a lot of love for white folks. Uh, but what's been complex for me is really kind of thinking about who I would be if I was raised by a black woman. And this is no I love my mom. I think she's a fantastic mom, but I think that at the time when her and my dad started dating and they started dating when they were 16, they've been together for a long time. <laughs> my, it wasn't really, it wasn't, I grew up not around a lot of biracial people. And I know that my parents um, didn't have a lot of friends that were in interracial relationships. And then the awareness and even just like the 
emphasis on understanding what it's like to have children that don't identify the same as you do that are black. They're going to have different hair to you, different skin, all these things, uh, wasn't something that my mom put a lot of emphasis on. And I was on the receiving end of some relatively, like I'd say racist comments from my mom, as well as her side of the family. And I think that as such, I've built a level of like patience and understanding because of course I love my mom and it's been a complex and interesting relationship because I have developed almost a sense of patience because I know and can see in practice that she doesn't know what she doesn't know. Uh, And she has grown up in systems that are so foreign to me that I'm not aware of, right? Growing up in a very small town, Kirkland Lake, where she knew one black woman. Yeah, it's, it's, it's complex. It's, it's tough. And I think that, I think I operate with a lot more patience um, than necessary. I think sometimes with white identified folks, when I have these conversations, probably because of the the people that I was raised by and the people I was raised around my tolerance level. But I think that as I've grown older and I've become more aware of who I am and, and my, my skin color and, and the impact that it has um, on me, I've become a little less tolerant, uh, a little less understanding. And I've certainly kind of distanced myself from thinking that whiteness will protect me. Like I know that colorism exists because I benefit from it. I was raised up in environments where I was constantly affirmed that I was better because I wasn't fully black in their mind. These are, this is their language. Um, and by there, I mean, white folks, uh, I would always be told, you know, you have really good hair, you know, you, you have really great skin tone. You've the best of both worlds. Um, you have better features than, you know, a, a black person would, because your, your nose is more narrow and your lips aren't as big. Like these were comments that I was on the receiving end of from white people that I trust and that I loved. And it made it almost hard for me at times to accept my blackness, to accept and and care about or even love my black heritage because I was constantly being told that I was better because I was, I I had whiteness in me. Right. Wow. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's, I know that colorism exists. I know that racism exists because I've seen it. I benefited from it. Right. I, I feel and feel safe in white spaces generally because they feel safe with me and they tell me, right. Okay. Yeah. And that, yeah. that's been a really complex and hard thing for me to acknowledge and for me to accept, uh, because it's not what I want. I identify as black. And I think that to a certain degree, of course, I, um, have built ways of navigating, uh, certain social situations, specifically the workplace because I've seen it modeled. Uh, I've grown up around um, a lot of white folks and I know what would deem me as part of the group of like what they would. And by they, I mean, white folks perceive as like the not so the not acceptable black things, the way that you carry yourself. And I know I'm being like probably a lot more thought a lot more open about this. I've never really you're spoken being, about no, this. I appreciate, I mean, I appreciate it if it's, if you're comfortable yeah. with it, but it's, it's really, um, it's really interesting to get, to get your perspective on it because you would have seen like both of those perspectives, like you mentioned. So no, I appreciate you sharing. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile. We like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, 
they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Absolutely. And, and I know you're, you know, speaking of the work that you're doing is more specifically in the workplace. Yes. I, I saw something you just posted and I didn't get to go through it fully, but, but just the progress, I think, is it just females though, that you just posted since last year about like females and going back to work and women, um, it was a little video was it with yeah was it women so we always say like because females kind of derogatory uh, to refer to women as so i just small, small kind of correction there so it was around women yeah, in the workplace there. and and some of the the myths um that have been attached to women's experience at work and what they want i'm very passionate about um elevating and supporting women at work in particular because i think that it's um a key component to uh, bridging those gaps as it relates to gender parity, um, the gender pay gap, and then also just like women's uh, independence uh, as it relates to like their, their work and home life. So yeah, no, I shared that earlier today. I was also speaking a little bit about the systems that exist and how oftentimes I find that organizations, coaches, educators, facilitators will focus their energy towards enabling uh, and empowering people that are part of minority, marginalized, underrepresented, underserved groups and communities with the tools that they need to like navigate around the systems that weren't built to serve them or weren't built with them in mind. And in some cases that were built to like completely keep them out. Uh, And I think that we should be focusing our energy on encouraging individuals that benefit from the systems that were built with them in mind to dismantle and reimagine and rebuild systems that will include everyone, that will have everyone in mind. I don't think that we should be putting it on the shoulders of marginalized individuals uh, to do the work, to do more work on top of the work that they're already doing to navigate systems that will never, that weren't built for them in mind. It just seems like a, a lose-lose scenario. So that's what I've been focusing a lot of my work on as it relates to the workplace. And that's what we do via Bloom. We build, we work with uh, organizations to help them to build systems that are inclusive uh, and that will help to foster more diverse teams, as well as more diverse perspectives, outputs, and then just better business outcomes. Um, the, the statistics are out there. We know that more diverse teams perform better um, than teams that aren't racially uh, or gender diverse. We, we know that. So a big challenge that people have is like, how do we get there? And oftentimes I find that the, the focus has been centered around the individual, but we cannot focus on the individual um, as much. Of, of course, there's a space for that. And it's important. Like with Sunday showers, we do that. We're empowering women to, to, um, to celebrate their, their uh, professional accomplishments. That's important. That's fun, right? I, I think that there's definitely a space for that. But as it relates to the workplace, it shouldn't be on marginalized people. Specifically, if we're talking about uh, folks that identify the same as me, Black women, it shouldn't be on them to spearhead this work and to rebuild systems. It should be on folks that are benefiting from systems that oppress marginalized people to dismantle those systems and build them up uh, and to support the, 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 the shift in these systems. Uh, so more people can be included, more people will be thought of and more people can thrive at work. I think that people profiting from, you know, <laughs> being like, basically the game is rigged, <laughs> but we're going to have you pay us to learn how to navigate around the system. It's like a game of snakes and ladders. Like it's just, it, it it's just too much. And I think that 
one of the challenges I have with, you know, International Women's Day, Women's Month, as we're, as we've moved into celebrating that and Black History Month is a lot of the conversation is centered around hear this Black person, hear this woman speak about their experience at work. And I think that it helps people to feel a little less alone, but it's like, I would love to hear from companies. I would love to hear from leaders. I would love to hear from white cisgendered men about what they're doing what systems they're dismantling, what they've changed in the way that they're working to invite more people to be a part of this conversation, to invite more, invite more people to be um, have a seat at the table, to um, create more inclusive spaces for everyone. That's what I would love to learn more about. And I, I think that we there's definitely a space and it's important to hear from marginalized and underrepresented communities, but I, I'd love to learn more about wh- how we're actually working towards dismantling these systems. It's That's what we do at Bloom is we help people along that journey. Um, but there's no playbook that exists. Every company has ways that they can do it and ways that they can't. So navigating around that and helping them to build those systems in a way that's in line with their values um, and support supported by systems that they already have in place is challenging. That's amazing and such valuable work. Cause then I think back to my corporate life, it was, we had the, we had the talk from International Women's Day. We just had two, we had two women come up and speak, which was great. But at the top of the leadership, there was literally no female, let alone a female of color on the, on the exec team. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it would have meant more and, and maybe now, who knows, maybe this year they're having that conversation of, you know, what has been done, hopefully. But yeah, I would, I would say now we're at the point where we've, we've had those conversations and it's great to still have them. But now what is the action that's come of, you know, three, four years of International Women's Day conversations or Black History Month conversations? When is that leadership going to kind of vocalize what the action is now too? Yeah. That's only my my personal kind of experience, but I think you hit the nail on the head with that and why an organization like Bloom is, is so relevant. And gosh, you guys must, you guys must be really busy. (laughs) Yeah, we, we were, we've been really busy and we've been doing a lot of really great work with a lot of really great teams. Um, we've educated just in the last year, like thousands of people as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion, specifically around the foundations of the work, um, anti-racism at work and what that looks like, and then also around how to apply it into the workplace. And I think that that's what's missing in the conversation. Um, We're talking a lot about dismantling systems uh, that oppress folks. We're talking a lot about uh, anti-Black racism. We're talking a lot about microaggressions, et cetera, et cetera. But how do we apply that in the way that we work? Um, Because if I'm at a grocery store, for example, and someone, you know, calls me the N-word with a hard R, hard R, I can remove myself from the situation. I can maybe act out in a way. I could, I could respond in, a, in a equally uh, aggressive and horrific way back to them with no real consequence directly to like my being able to support myself, my family, pay my mortgage, mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. There's a very real power dynamic that exists within the workplace and their systems, hierarchy, bureaucratic stuff to support those systems. It is very clear and navigating around a situation uh, when you may have a boss that's operating from a point of bias, or when you have a, uh, um, a colleague that has said, racist or sexist things um, on a continuous basis, or when you have a uh, HR manager that doesn't care deeply about creating and cultivating uh, an anti-racist company. These are all things that directly impact you and oftentimes impact your ability to earn a living and to support your life, to support your children, your your family, uh, yourself. And I think that when we acknowledge that very real power dynamic and the privilege that comes along with it, it, it's so important that we speak on a more critical level and a more strategic level about this work. So yes, microaggressions exist. This is how you can respond to a microaggression at work, right? This is how you can support someone. If you see someone on the receiving end of a microaggression at work, this is how you can call this, that person in. This is maybe when you would call them out, right? Cause calling in isn't necessarily always the best option. Sometimes you have to call someone out and this is when you would do it. And this is how you can do it. This is how you can apologize to someone if you have caused harm, right? This is how you listen and learn. Like it's so important to talk about how to take action. I think that that's, what's missing. Um, 
as part of the conversation uh, broadly right now, specifically as we talk about being like a influencer uh, in this space of like talking about racism and microaggressions and everything like that. But in particular, uh, in most cases with the workplace, and I've been and sat in many diversity uh, trainings in the past that are like, one, it's a one hour session. They talk about the history of racism in Canada. They talk about at a very high level, what you can do about it, uh, which always seems very lofty and very hard. And then as a black woman, I'm just kind of there thinking that even if I wasn't feeling empowered prior to the session and feeling like I was paid equally, feeling like I was, um, you know, respected and appreciated at work, I all of a sudden don't feel that way. And it makes me think back and reflect on all the experiences that I've had. And a lot of stuff comes up for me. So as part of our Bloom DEI learning experience, we offer meditation. We have uh, restorative healing sessions uh, that are specifically for Black identified people and BIPOC identified people because it's important that we're holding space for them to unpack, to revisit some of those experiences, and in some cases to heal from them. We can't promise that, of course, but I think it's important that those folks that are on the receiving end of these oppressive systems have a place to talk about them, to share their experiences, and then also hopefully to build build those 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 ways of working um, to heal from them. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's the just in that aspect, the talking about it, that peer support is a really meaningful first step. So the talk there, I see very meaningful, meaningful. I see what you're talking about on the, on the more corporate side, because I sat in a lot of those trainings myself and talk. Yeah. The talk there is a little different than, um, that's amazing that you guys, that you guys offer those, uh, services as well, just to like the general public. Mm -hmm. And I know you've on, on a personal note, you've had a really kind of big uh, last month anyway, with your conversation on leading with resiliency. I know Ariana Huffington, Indigo was involved, Walmart, et cetera. So yeah. really great conversation the other week. And I'd love to just kind of talk a little bit about the year that we've maybe all been through and the workplace and, and how we can lead, lead with resiliency in that aspect. So if you could take that really amazing hour long conversation and <laughs> synthesize that into, into a, a couple of thoughts for us here. Oh my gosh, Ariana, Heather <laughs> and Nabila shared so many great pieces of feedback and advice and tips that folks could apply. One of the biggest things that I took away from that conversation, I would have ferociously been writing notes if I could have, but Nabila shared that she has like a baseline of things that she requires to uh, operate from a place of resilience uh, on a, on a weekly basis. And she's coming from the perspective of having uh, 10 years ago, she's now at a, in an executive leadership role at, at, at Walmart. She built her career, like really worked her way up. Um, the corporate ladder. She started as an associate um, at Starbucks as a barista and has now worked her way up to the the head of uh, corporate affairs at Walmart Canada, which is huge. Uh, She said that when she was a store manager, she had an actual like nervous breakdown and uh, the impact that it caused for her at work. um, It it really shifted her perspective in terms of like working, overworking yourself, not getting enough sleep, not taking care of yourself, not putting your mask on first. Um, Because what we know is that if you don't have a full cup, you don't have much to give to others. And when I think about resilience, uh, I've been guilty of this as well. You know, like trying to, you know, staying up until three or four o'clock in the morning because in the, in, yeah. in the name of doing the work and then only running on about two to three hours of sleep, you'll get to the point where you have nothing left to give. And what I've done um, for my team and what Nabila was sharing was like just having that baseline. So things that you need to have in order to feel good um, on a daily basis, just as a human, not necessarily as at work. So for her, it was like, you know, working out three times a week and um, going outside for a walk. For me, it's like, I have to have seven to eight hours of sleep every night. I know that. I know that I don't do well if I'm in back-to-back meetings throughout the day. I know that I need time to have deep work. So on Fridays, I typically don't do any meetings. I I spend that time unpacking and and doing creative work, which is important for me. Uh, I know that I need to always be in a a point of inspiration. I need to feel inspired in my day-to-day life. So as such, I need to have time to do creative things, whether it means like reading 
uh, a book or painting or drawing or creating remodeling a house. Totally, totally. (laughs) I need that. But then I also, um, need to spend time with loved ones. And I know that's harder now with COVID, but I've been renovating my house. So I've been quarantined with my parents almost for the last six months. (laughs) So I, I've been hanging out with them and my partners here and he and I have been picking up and doing fun things, but I also need time and space where I don't do anything serious. I need to spend a couple hours a week on something that's not important. So if that's watching like reality TV shows, which I love to dabble in or playing call of duty, which has been a really new kind of thing that I've been in, like the gaming space is interesting. Okay. So that's what I've been doing, but it's, it unplugs my mind. I'm not on my phone. I'm being mindful of that. And then the next piece too, for me is building resiliency is having and maintaining really strong boundaries as it relates to my personal privacy. So I used to share a lot online and I've been, um, as a result of being on the receiving end of death threats and a lot of, um, just like really harmful and horrific comments and DMS I've, I'm, I'm becoming a lot more private. I would love to be more open and more transparent and share all the things with all the people, because I think that there's a, I know that there's a lot of value in, in people seeing themselves uh, represented and hearing stories from those folks that have made it through challenging situations and times and thrive and, and really getting to this point of thriving and feeling empowered. But with that said, the internet is a really strange place and there's a lot of folks that don't want it to be a safe space for people like me. So as such, I've, become a lot more private and privacy. I've, I've become to value it a lot more than I have in the past, but for, for me, i um, modeling those behaviors for my team has been really important. So we have, um, flex Fridays, uh, fitting four days, four days of work. Like we don't, we technically speaking, we have a four day work week, but it's hard to fit five days of work into four days. It's really hard to do that. So with flex Fridays, if you want to work on Friday, you can, and you'll be compensated for that time. That's the best way to kind of fairly do it. We have movement sessions with a company by the name of Bolo. Uh, So every two days a week, we get together and just like move together. Um, Some people would call it maybe like a workout, but it's, it's just a movement hour, which is really great. We have meditation that we offer to the team two days a week and we're a small business. So we're not necessarily. That's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was gonna say, that's awesome that you guys do that. That's way more forward than some major corporations. Mm-hmm. And I never <laughs> message my team after five ever. Like if I, unless there's a fire, um, there's been no reason for us to work, uh, outside of our core office hours or on the weekends. Uh, I think that in all my time of having bloom up and running, I have maybe messaged someone on the weekend once, uh, and that's it. It's just, I honor and respect the boundaries of my team uh, has, and we, I stay true to stay true to them. That's my commitment to them. So modeling the behavior, but also respecting the boundaries that, uh, I, that I expect on my, to receive on my end is, is really important. I think with those boundaries, you end up getting the respect and, and just as good of work. Like I, I'm similar in that here's the project, get it done how you want to get it done mm-hmm. <laughs> and think outside the box and how you want to do that. And yeah, I think allowing people that space, I hope we're going into a, a workspace that is more kind of open to how people think and work differently. I think of young children and going to school and having, you know, testing and all that, just because I've been teaching a, a course and how interesting that feels in a way and that we kind of make everyone learn and do in this one format. And that's not how everyone works the best, right? So uh, learn or work the best. So I think that's really awesome that you guys do that. I love that. I think you're gonna have a lot of people applying. (laughs) We're hiring for two people and I haven't posted the roles yet, but I'm I'm going to be posting them very soon. And when they're posted, I'm very excited to see who, who decides to apply and join us. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Well, I appreciate you so much taking the time to chat with us today. Um, I think I mentioned this to you the other day. We usually kind of wrap things up with now that we've talked about it, what kind of action can we take? Mm-hmm. But I know I know you have on your Instagram just a lot of great resources. So maybe just even a refresher of where we can find you. Yeah, definitely. So uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Avery Francis, A-V-E-R-Y, F-R-A-N-C-I-S. It's the same on both channels uh, or 
platforms. And uh, yeah, love to see you there. And on top of that, I think that in terms of how you can continue to take sustained action is to donate. If you do not have the money to donate to these community organizations or these causes, that's okay. You can donate your time. Uh, whether it be through learning, uh, reading books, uh, or um, donating your time in terms of like amplifying their 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 community or these community organizations, the work that they're doing, and sharing it with your um, network, that that could go a long way. But then also being actively anti-racist, right? Uh, and that means uh, if you see something at the grocery store, saying something. That means calling folks in. That means if you are, you know in the future at a barbecue with your family and someone makes a racist comment, educating them on that. And this is specifically for white folks. Um, there's a lot that you can be done that you can be doing to take sustained action. And, and essentially what I would love to like leave off with, because we started the conversation here is don't just reshare and like, and, and, and repost, uh, the, these really great tidbits of information, take them in, uh, right. Absorb them, welcome the feedback and the suggestions and the tips that people are sharing with you and take action, continue to do the work, uh, continue to learn, continue to be open to being proven wrong when you're presented with new information and taking sustained action from there. I love it. Well, I feel like I've learned a few things today myself too. Awesome. Very appreciated. Thank you for tuning into this conversation. We will have a brand new one on a brand new topic every Monday. If you were intrigued by anything in our conversation, we encourage you to talk about it. Tell a friend, post on social media, take action in your very own way. Subscribe to get the newest episode at your fingertips as soon as it drops. Until next time, check out Style Canada, a disruptor in the media for its community of inquisitive style seekers. You can find us at style.ca or on social media. Just like this podcast, Style Canada is not just about style. It's about living a lifestyle that leaves people open to evolution and opportunity. This episode was hosted by Elise Gasparino, produced and edited by Alia Ballas. The music credit goes to Raspberry Music and was brought to you by Style Canada. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.